It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we have a privilege and an honor being accorded to us because we have a marvelous individual that you are going to enjoy hearing from. And our guest today is Maria Schneider. Maria is, of course, a composer, a jazz orchestra leader, and she's also a multiple Grammy Award winner. Maria, thanks for joining us today on All That's Jazz. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. One quick question before we get started. Tell me about the fact that you had actually either started training or for a while you were involved in figure skating. Oh gosh, I, training is too too much of a word, but no, because I was from a really tiny town in Minnesota and they, mm-hmm. when I was young, they built an arena. And so I was among the first to come up, you know, taking figure skating lessons. And But we largely learned just by hurling our bodies in the air. <laughs> I learned a lot from a book, you know, we had a teacher, but she wasn't super experienced. And then in the summer, I would go somewhere to a skating camp or whatever, but yeah, but I loved figure skating so much, and um, and I used to love to just put music on. Sometimes, uh, sometimes at night, the man who did the Zamboni machine, mm-hmm. he'd let me because it, it wasn't super busy this place. You know, at certain hours it was, and he knew that I just loved to put music on and then just you know just skate, interpret the music, and so sometimes he'd say, "I just Zambonied the ice. You want to have it?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was you. just so nice, you know, and I would just go there and, you know, but those are great memories. It's just a fabulous, fabulous, beautiful sport. And I love to watch it on TV. And yeah, you know, so just to give you a clue how old I am. So when I would come up with my music for a skating routine, mm-hmm. I would record it onto a reel to reel that my dad had. And then I would splice, I would have to do my editing by splicing it you know, and taping it. Right. And that was, that w- those were my skating reels, you know, <laughs> it was such a different time. And I used to have tape laying across the living room floor, you know, and this is, you know, doing something to a medley from the King and I, I did. <laughs> oh my God, I'll never forget. But, you know, those were the old days of analog and they were beautiful. I don't, I, I look back fondly at at that time. I know, razor blades and a splicing block. Uh, Yeah. I'm glad we're past that. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you too, just something about skating. I mean, I danced as a kid too, you know, ballet and tap and all that. I just loved dance of any kind and skating is Mm -hmm. dance. It's just on ice. And I would say that that is a huge influence on my music. A lot of my music has a sense of motion and, and, I, you know, a lot of times I, you know, I work here, but I get up and I move to try to figure out what's happening next in the music. And, you know, sometimes I'm I'm pretending that I'm doing a skating routine here on the floor, you know, just, and, and it helps me write. It's where a lot of my inspiration comes from. Well, thank you because you, that now you've beat me to one of the questions that I had in, in terms of what is it that moves your or what is part of your process in, in composing and, and and there are little things like that where you have a, either a movement or maybe a time of day 
or sounds, uh, whatever plays into having you hear the music in your head and then transcribing it onto a piece of paper? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just looking for sound that I like first and foremost. And then a lot of times that sound, it doesn't always happen, but a lot of times that sound will um, call up some memory in my head. You know, I'll just be working and playing through it and going through it in my head. And it sometimes it just by free association, it attaches to something. And then if that happens, it's like, wow, okay, maybe this music, I'll use that experience, that thing, that, that event or whatever it is to inspire the form of the piece and the trajectory of things. Wonderful. It truly is an honor and a privilege to speak with you. I mean, you are such a diverse, well-known name in the business and have made such a wonderful difference in the world of music and more specifically even to jazz as it relates to not only our podcast, but for the listeners who love and appreciate jazz music. And a number of your Grammys are, of course, jazz awards. And you just recently received two more Grammy awards, one for best jazz large ensemble and another for composition. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really, it's a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm lucky. Of course, the thing, you know, I, I always remember there are just so many great people that don't even get nominated, you know, so it's a, it's a great thing. But, you know, I also know the whole history of music, all the great, great people that never get anything like that. So keeping it in perspective. (laughs) Well, it certainly is keeping it in perspective for yourself. You've had something like 14 Grammy nominations and now what is it? Five or or seven awards? Seven. Seven. It's crazy. I'm looking at my shelf. It's like that where those are going to go. It's like, (laughs) At seven, I never imagined. Well, actually, when I was young, I, I I was so bold as to imagine. I I remember when I was a kid making my Grammy speech in the living room. You know, so so maybe there's something back in the back of the brain, you know, that I envisioned. It. Who knows? I but you know, once I was really studying music, it was the furthest furthest thing from imagining that it would, could ever happen to me. So, well, now that you have so many of them, have you uh, reached a stage in life to where you have to commission a cabinet maker? <laughs> no, no, but um, yeah, it, it is moving some books out of the way. That's for sure. It's, it's sending me to the uh, secondhand bookstore with a few things. <laughs> Well, the the one thing that a lot of people don't know is besides the award itself, even being nominated, as you said, is is quite an honor. But there also is a prize for that, so to speak, uh, with the fact that there is a medal and a ribbon that is sent to each nominee. And that in itself is is quite spectacular. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I have a collection of those and hanging in a little case and, you know, um, yeah, it's 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 a wonderful thing to be recognized, and and in the eyes of the world, it means a lot. It it is a career changer when you win a Grammy, absolutely, because it is that marker for people out there. You know that wow, you won a Grammy. You know it's it's a big deal. It is a big deal, and and of course, uh, it, it shows uh, not only a sense of excellence and creativity, but also uh, of passion, commitment, and a lot of hard work. It doesn't come easily. That's for sure. Yeah, it, the music business, and it, it gets harder and harder. 
you know, I mean, the music is supposed to be the hardest part of making music, you know, coming up with the music, facing the blank page. You get excited to create, but when it becomes a living and you start feeling the pressures of, you know, making a living and everything, it, it can really, really be daunting. And, and now add to it all the hoops that we have to jump through self-marketing and being entrepreneurial and all these things to make a living in it. And it's shocking. It's amazing. And, and when I go to schools and I teach and I see all the things that these kids are having to do on top of just learning music, it's, it's sort of like ask, telling them they have to go out and be a plate spinner. You know, it's, it's just crazy. Well, and it, it's, I think indicative of the changes that have happened in the industry and in the music business itself uh, and to where it has changed. Some of it, it really never changed or went away. It's always been not without its uh, foibles and, and issues uh, in terms of being in the music business. For example, my wife and I watched a, uh, a special or a documentary on Queen the other night. And what was oh. interesting was the band that they put together was fantastic and they were so devoted to what they were doing. And then as things started to progress and they, they gained more notoriety and success, they realized that they weren't getting paid for it, uh, that there were some of the people that were managing them that were driving all these extravagant cars and uh, having lots of money and they weren't getting any of it. There is this dark history of the record business of the managers, the Woody Herman story, the manager who was, instead of paying his taxes, was gambling or spending, taking the money. And then all of a sudden Woody at the end of his life is having the IRS taking everything from him. You know, this that story happened, I think, to many people. And so, you know, there a lot of people prey on people that, uh, you know, are looking the other way. You know, musicians, we, we all want to get our music out there, so many of them at any cost. And a lot of times they're just not paying attention to the contracts, the terms, what somebody is doing. And and it's gotten a lot of people in trouble over the years. Well, of course, through the years, uh, not only have you been successful and obviously very, very well accomplished, but you've also become a very strong advocate and spokesperson for music rights and copyright and so forth. And, and that's become central to your issue in, in so many ways. Uh, are you feeling that that's a badge of honor that you're wearing? It's just, you know, in, in life, there's so many things that you could raise your flag and get, you know, adamant about and rise up against, you know, there's just so many things and sometimes certain issues touch you in particular. And for me, it did touch me in particular, um, this whole issue of big corporations taking advantage of the arts and on a number of levels, not just what it's doing uh, to the creators of the music, but what it's doing to the music itself as well. The recent Grammys that you won had centered around the recording that you did called Data Lords. And that, uh, 
I think, if I'm not uh, seeing this correctly, uh, is uh, sort of a, a way to say that uh, you are still being this advocate for musician rights and copyright and so forth in this day and age of technology and that the recording industry, as a result, has suffered through the technology? Well, this this is a cause I took on kind of... Um, rather quickly when I started to see how big tech companies were taking advantage of musicians and, and using our music as a carrot for gathering data. It's plain and simple as that, you know, not it, turning a blind eye to infringement or even kind of pr promoting it in a way that they can sort of say, oh, we didn't know, but they do know and they need the infringement because they need the eyeballs and that's how they gather the data. And this thing not only affects our livelihoods, it's going to affect the music because it's not sustainable that artists make recordings and have no chance of actually making the money back that they're spending on that recording. And that's what's happening for the vast, vast, vast majority of music. 90% of the music on Spotify is splitting less than 1% of the pie. You know. This is, these are all the, you know, these are the classical, you know, and jazz and world Grammy winners, MacArthur winners, you know, Pulitzer winners, you know, it's, and, and a lot of just plain middle-class musicians. And the middle-class musician is so important to the industry. It all moves the music forward. But now we have people like Daniel Ek, who owns Spotify, and he says, oh, you know, musicians are complaining about money. You know, they just need to make more music. <laughs> you know, that to somebody like me is absolutely absurd. I mean, I've run myself so ragged. I spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on my recordings. They take years to de develop. And so now we're just all supposed to spit out crappy music to make, mon to make him money, <laughs> you know? Really, that's what it is. It's just, it's absurd. I always say that musicians are underwriting this failed experiment of streaming. And it's not the streaming, it's the economics behind it. That's the problem. No, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's, it's not the music itself. But, it, you know, at the same time, uh, what, what do you say about people uh, that, uh, say, well, you know, it's just sort of a double-edged sword. Uh, while you may be losing money in some respect, you're gaining notoriety or you're gaining familiarity by some of these streaming platforms uh, putting your music out there to turn people on to it. So there's different thoughts about it. One thing I say is, you know, all that exposure and we're dying of overexposure. First of all, there's such a glut of music out there for free. It's very hard to rise to the top now. You know, for the middle class, you've got this the super wealthy, you know, musicians, and then you've got everybody, you know, that's just decimated, everybody else. The other thing is not everybody that makes music performs. So the, the, the big line is that you, you are going to get all these fans and then you, they'll come to your concerts. Well, there's a lot of older musicians that are no longer performing. There's a lot of songwriters that don't perform at all and composers. And so that's kind of ridiculous. And 
here's here's the thing is the real the real problem is that this stuff has destroyed the free market because now there's only one place to go for music. It's these big streaming sites, YouTube is one of them. And it's very hard to get people to come to your own place to actually buy the music. And, and, when, and if they come to your own site to buy your music, you're able to set the price according to what your music costs to make, how many fans you have, and what you think the market will bear. But in the streaming world, everybody's payment is tied, first of all, to a pot of money that the tech company decides they can pay after they've covered their own expenses, right? Now we have this much to divvy it out and we're gonna divvy it out per play. That means that everybody is priced the same. It doesn't matter if you make a specialty niche music item with a tiny audience or you're a superstar that's making music in your bedroom on your computer, you know? And so it's so anti-free market and free market supposedly is a dirty word these days, but try spending a quarter of a million on a record in jazz and then streaming it and see if you make more than you know $10 back on it, as opposed to if I can set my own price and I'm making $25 or $20 average on each person, it doesn't take that many people then to reach $200,000. So there's, it's, it's uh, yeah, the arguments of these companies, again, it's just self-serving for them. To make data, to make money, uh, gather data, sell that data, you. And in the end, here's the other thing: they're not just using the musicians and using the music; they're using every person that listens because every person is being manipulated with the data that they get and coerced with information that they know about them into buying things and going certain places or believing certain things. So it's really, you know. God, I wish the world would wake up to the to how bad this stuff is. I mean, they're starting to, but not fast enough. I've been screaming about this stuff for seven years now, longer. Well, what do you think the answer is then to make that go away? Well, one thing would be if we could all set our own prices. That, yeah, you can be on these sites if you choose. You, you can be on the site for free if you choose, but that you could also set your price. Just like on Amazon Prime, when you go to watch a movie, some of them you have to pay for. That somebody could say, well, to listen to this record or whatever, you have to pay this amount, you know, and that those micro amounts or if they're bigger would be, um, you know, would be divvied out. The other thing is this model that people talk about that say you pay $9.99 a month on Spotify that and all you listen to is Christian McBride, that you're, you're crazy about Christian McBride, you listen to it all month, then his, your whole $9.99 should go to Christian McBride or to whatever jazz musicians not being split up per pay against all those other people. You know, our fan base should be there, what they contribute financially should go to us. And, and then data, we should be allowed to know who's listening to our music so that we can foster those relationships. 
Why should these companies who haven't contributed anything get to have the data on everybody and we can't have the contact to know who those people are if they consent to it? So, um, yeah, there's, you know, Spotify, YouTube, all these companies, you know, they, they're... Uh. So what, what is the, the thrust or the, the, the statement or, or is there a statement being made uh, with Data Lords? Well, I wasn't trying to make a statement. I was writing music. Again, like I talked about in the beginning, a lot of times my music just, you know, something musically comes and it attaches itself to something. And, and some of those pieces were kind of dark themes. And then I started thinking about artificial intelligence and all these things that have been ruminating in my mind were coming out. But then the next piece was, you know, maybe Bluebird after it was actually after after Data Lords. Or maybe I wrote Bluebird right before it. They were kind of at the same time. They, they were both premiered within a week of each other. And what I started to notice about my music, because people started saying, oh, you need to record again. They'd come to concerts and they'd hear these different pieces that, you know, one was very, you know, about poetry or inspired by a garden. The next one was, you know, don't be evil, you know, on the ravages of, of big tech. And I said, I don't know how to put all this music together. I don't think I can record it. And then one night I was lying in bed and I said, oh my God, my, my music is showing me about my life and all of our lives that we are caught in this swirl of information, the, the vortex, the draw, the enticement, which is full of usury and full of surveillance and all these different things. And it's taking over our minds, our creativity, our sovereign space in, for our own thinking. And I, and I know I'm not alone, and I think the COVID times have really shown it, and many times just trying to push it away and just in a way now I have to force myself to, to reconnect to the earth, to poetry, to things that I love, to the silence in my own head, my own sovereign space. And all of a sudden I said, okay, this is going to be a double album and it's going to reflect this dichotomy of what we're trying to hang on to and what we're losing and 
what's happening to us. And it's, it's funny because it happened to come out during COVID and it, I think it really struck a chord with a lot of people. Well, and I'm, I'm sure that it did because obviously it won a Grammy. Uh, but like you said, there's the dichotomy of the two worlds, the technology and then the natural world. But do, do you think that at some point this results in maybe a happy or peaceful coexistence of both? I mean, we, we, can't, we can't just dismiss the technological world. It's, it's always now, unfortunately, going to always be a part of our lives as, as we move forward. But hanging on dearly and with commitment to that natural world is important, too, to, to kind of keep us centered well, it's very important, but it's harder and harder to do because kids are being enticed by this from the very beginning. You and I remember what that other world was like. Kids don't. And, and, I, and I see kids like, and, you know, you'll see a kid in a restaurant and their parents put an iPod in front of them. And I've seen little kids, they see that screen and, oh, my God, you can't get their attention away from it. The lack of transparency for algorithms um, I just saw a documentary, wow, I'd have to get the name of it and maybe you could put the title up, about how actually, you know, uh, racist algorithms are because they're, they're, they're put together with based on the past, you know, what we know about the past and they're not transparent. So if somebody doesn't get that loan, doesn't get that opportunity, that job, and they can't really know why, and it's not a person deciding it. It's an algorithm. And that company then can hide behind it and say, oh, it's just the algorithm. It's, it's, it's neutral. It's not a person. And it's not fair. And, and, and we know this now. So, you know, we really have to start looking at these things and how they're affecting our lives, how it's affecting democracy. Oh, there was another movie called The Social Dilemma that was a lot about the polarization. And I see it amongst people I know because I know people on both sides of the, the world and, you know, neither are hearing the, the information coming from the other side. And both are skewed, very skewed. Mm -hmm. And it's like I long for a world where we have kind of a sense of some, some modicum of a sense of where the truth is and a real discourse, but it's taking discourse away and it's just turning a blind eye to the other side. For me, it's very, very scary. So, you know, if democracy is to prevail, if mental health, you know, they know more people are committing suicide, are depressed, feel overwhelmed. People, despite all the connecting, feel lonelier. Well, doesn't music play a large role in, in keeping people grounded and uh, on, on earth, feet planted? I think firmly? the arts do in general. The arts, I think nature does, silence does, you know, definitely. When I teach, I'm always telling students, you, you want to find your voice in music. You got to turn off that phone, that computer and sit in that uncomfortable silence to have things start to bounce in your own brain, to formulate your own questions and your, not, your own answers, not to have them spewed at you by, you know, something on the computer that's always, you know, giving you some notification. Everything's like, look at me, look at me, give me your attention. <laughs> and, you know, 
the act of creating music and art, it requires solitude and silence. And it's, we have to work so hard now to force ourselves into having silence. It's like, oh, I got to turn off my phone. I got to turn off my computer. And, you know, a lot of people just cannot do that now. They're so addicted. And, but, you know, when I was young, the, the silence and the solitude was that that was that was the foundation of life. You know, you found things then to fill and you created things, you imagined things, you imagined your own things. And yeah, I, the first title or the first piece on the album is called The World Lost. That's the world that I I feel so sad that's lost is just that internal landscape of emptiness, you know, in a way where all that creativity, all that thought, the ideas happen. So and look, I'm just going to say one thing. I know there's a lot of amazing things about technology, artificial intelligence, big data. There's many things, but we have to get a handle on it and the power of consolidate you know these companies that have the power to have more power than governments do they have the power to steer the choices of voters without voters even knowing that it's happening that's scary no there, there's no question about that and it, it's it's good to have it brought back to us or presented to us uh, in the form for example that you do through music so that we can stay grounded uh, and and not lose that connection to our spiritual and universal selves we we need to pay attention to nature to each other and not worry st- so much about statistics i mean even during the pandemic uh, look at what happened after a while we were so bombarded with information that 500,000 plus people dying became just a statistic and, yeah. and we lose sight of the fact that there are faces connected to every single one of those numbers and a story yeah. behind each of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with respect to your music through the years, has this been a central or common theme or thread through all of the music in terms of how you're presenting yourself uh, and, and the music that you compose? You know, I a lot of my music, if I look back, you know, years later, I start to see where it's coming from, you know, sometimes uh, personal things, but sometimes just where I was create- creatively and the different forces that were on my life. But um, for instance, somewhere in the late 90s, I went to Brazil for the first time. And up until that point, my music was very intense and um, kind of strong and and a little bit brooding and really favoring minor keys and Phrygian and you know dark modes and and I went to Brazil and I just fell in love with Brazilian music and it was so full of joy and 
beauty, unabashed beauty. Whereas, you know, somehow jazz, sometimes I, I guess I thought there was a, a shame in going for something that's just beautiful, just pretty, you know, just, just happy, you know, that, oh, I can't really do that. This is jazz. And it wasn't a conscious thing, but it was a subconscious thing. And I went to Brazil and all that broke open. And I started bringing much more of that beauty and grace and just unabashed joy into my music. And, you know, did I know I was doing it at that point because of Brazil? No. I recognize it when I look back in time and I say, ah, that was the turning point. You know, that's, and the, and the album that represents that is Alagrass. It has these brooding pieces that were pr before going to Brazil. And then there was hang gliding and Sea of Tranquility and some of these other pieces, uh, Journey Home that came after going to Brazil. So, you know, it's, and they have a different quality to them. But then now in the latest times, um, you know, I, I collaborated with David Bowie and David Bowie, um, he was, he really liked my old, older, darker stuff. So when we worked together, he said, you know, I really want you to channel that spirit, you know, so he kind of broke open that, that thing again, you know, dusted off that old dusty, dark closet, and then add to it with me, you know, fuming over big data, and you had the perfect storm for data lords, you know, um, it was pretty funny because I, had, when I was mixing the Thompson Fields, or I, I just finished, um, let me think about this. Yeah, I was just starting. We had just recorded the Thompson Fields, and I was just starting to mix it. And David and I had written this song, Sewer, in a season of crime, and it was very kind of dark. And and we, uh, he sent me when it, when that came out, he sent me the mix of it, and and I, it was so hard for me. Suddenly, I felt like it was fun to be in that dark space again. And, but I had to mix that music on Thompson Fields. And I felt like I wasn't there anymore. And I said to him, I said, you know, I feel like you've ruined me. I feel like I'm just so man, like this album I'm putting out is so mamsy pamsy. And he said, well, then my work is done here. <laughs> That's what he emailed back to me. So, but I, I, it's not that I don't love Thompson Fields, but you know, he, he cracked something open, that's for sure. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that anyway. And it, it seems like there was a transformative period of the, the song Sue, uh, the way he saw it, and then the way Maria Schneider saw it. And it, uh, it came out, his was sort of a, a darker version, uh, and you took it and, mm -hmm. and changed mm -hmm. it? No? No, no, no. We... Um, he he came to me with just the beginnings of a song, just the you know a little bit of the melody, a little bit, and an idea you know kind of a, a rough recording of what it might be. And he said he'd like to work on it with me. You know, it had no words. It had it was very skeletal, and um, but he wanted it to go someplace dark, and he wanted to ask me how to do it. It wasn't actually nearly as dark as what it ended up being. So then we just started working. I said, give me one week to just play around with this myself and just present some different directions this might go from my side and then let's sit and start working on it. So that's what we did. And then we did, it's, it's, it's on YouTube, of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
not by my choice, but anyway, it's up there. I, the, the orchestral version that we did with my, with my band. And then later he recorded it on Black Star with small, you know, with the Donnie McCaslin group. But the, the version that I worked on with him was the one with the big band. So let me ask you then, as a composer and a band leader, how do you get 18 musicians to buy into your vision? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think, I, I don't think I tried to get them to buy in. It, 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 you know, it's just uh, the ones that did are still there and the ones that didn't aren't, you know, kind of, you know, or they, and it's, if, if we're all finding it rewarding and in, in at least most of the time, then we stay together and we evolve together. And, and that's kind of what's happened. I, I wouldn't want to have a group where I've got to, tr you know, come in and try to get people on board with what I'm doing. I think we all have a very common thing, a, a common goal. And that is, we are all musicians that like to take chances. We are all musicians that love the art of listening and spontaneity and creativity. So I leave in my music these open parts that really allow them to each show their own voice. You know, some are more tightly composed underneath what they do, and some really leave, leave the possibilities of what can happen, like in CQ, CQ, Donnie McCaslin. Ben Monder and, and Jonathan Blake on drums where they go on guitar and tenor and you know is just like to the moon but they knew what they were coming from they knew where they were going to they had a sense of what the, the totality of the piece should feel like and I gave them that space but that space is something that I feel confident giving these musicians because we've worked together so long and I know that they understand the importance of context in soloing, that we all have the same values in music and that they respect the composition and they're gonna mm -hmm. play in context of the composition. But I want them to have that freedom. That's the joy for me is watching them do something totally different every night. So those are the qualities that keep us together. And I, I think that that speaks very well for your approach because so many composers uh, are very strict about staying within this particular frame or line and don't vary from it. But uh, it sounds to me like you, you have the ultimate that a musician would want to work for you because you give them that freedom and well, you, there's an element of trust here. Absolutely. The trust is huge. I mean, I would say everybody's different and everybody has to honor what their own their own music and, and sensibility is about. And there's certainly been tons of incredible music written that's very, very tightly composed, has no improvisation whatsoever, you know. So, you know, it, but these particular musicians and myself, I think we find ourselves valuing a certain kind of experience that we all have in common. 
So you've worked with uh, your orchestra. How many of them have been from the beginning through now, or how how much has this evolved or changed over the years that you've had the well, Maria some, Schneider Orchestra? Yeah, so, some of them, is, well, Greg Gisbert, who's from Denver, mm -hmm. he's I've been working with him since, I think, 1988. Um, other musicians I've worked with since then, two of the trombone players, Keith O'Quinn, George Flynn, Rich Perry on tenor, Scott Robinson on Barry. My first record, Jay Anderson, was on bass on that. Ben Monder came in then. That's 1992. Tony Cadillac's been there since the 80s. A lot. And then most of the rest came in in the 90s, but some came in in the last few years. Mike Rodriguez is re relatively new. Um, Gary Versace came in in the early 2000s. He is going to start playing piano with the band. As you maybe know, Frank Kimbrough died. Yeah. And, and it's been really devastating for all of us. And Gary's been playing accordion, but he's going to start playing piano with the band. And we'll figure out the accordion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I know you've worked uh, a significant amount of time with Frank Kimbrough. And that uh, was... Uh, I, I'm sure a wonderful collaboration because he, he was an amazing pianist and just uh, th th there aren't too many words to be able to describe just how wonderful and talented this man was. Yeah, the the word, well, the, the qualities I was describing in the group are larger qualities that I learned to really value through Frank. He was a risk taker. He was a listener. He was completely present in every moment for what was going on to take the music anywhere. He had impeccable ears and he loved it. He was always there. His concentration never wavered. He, he was such a supportive and beautiful player. So a lot of what the band has is, is a quality he really helped to foster in the band. He showed me how much I could trust by being somebody who was always playing appropriately while doing wildly different things every time. You know, it was an amazing combination. How hard is it for you as a composer and a band leader to not want to sit down and join in on the fun, so to speak, as a, the musician? Oh, uh, not really difficult <laughs> because I'm not that great of a player and I wouldn't really want to hear myself play you know, I'm very picky about my players. And if I auditioned for my own group, which I don't hold auditions, but say I did, I wouldn't hire me. I'd be like, next, <laughs> within a few bars, you know, not to say I don't love playing and I enjoy playing and I play a lot on my own and I play a lot with my partner, Mark. So that's fun. But at least you can articulate what you want out of a particular instrument or in oh, a yeah. certain section. I'm, I was always, it probably made Frank crazy, but I was always sitting down at the piano showing him certain things, how I wanted it, and, you know, um, and playing something just to give some kind of idea of what I was looking for. So, um, yeah, I was forever doing that. And sometimes I would think, God, I, I wonder if he's ready to kill me. <laughs> But that, that says a lot about you, too, because you know exactly what you want, and, and there is a trust and there's a bond with you and your musicians uh, that they can deliver that, and vice versa. You give, they give back to you as much as you give to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully it's a two-way street. 
So what do you think uh, is going to be your legacy? What do you want people to say or think about you? I don't know. I just hope they enjoy the music. And, and I think if there's something, it's the idea that I'm not trying to make any points through my music, but what I'm trying to do with my music is create experience. I don't want people to listen to my music and say, oh, that's tricky or that's cool or that's interesting. I want people to get lost in my music. I want it to feel like something that emotionally is either comforting or beautiful or, you know, that just takes them somewhere and makes them feel something, that it rises above being music and turns into an experience. And if my music can do that for people and kind of live on in that way, that would make me very happy. I can't tell you, Maria, how much of a pleasure it's been to uh, spend some time and get to know you and hear a little bit more about your music. Uh, It's uh, truly uh, a privilege. Well, thank you. It's been great speaking with you guys, and you take it easy. You too. Be well. Okay. Happy spring. Thanks for listening to this episode with Grammy Award-winning composer and band leader, Maria Schneider. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.